Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show that was originally broadcast on the 29th of January, back in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Coming up, coming up. We're almost halfway through, folks, halfway through the winter. <sighs> How you doing? Are you hanging in there? This is Bob Rowe. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Come on in out of the cold if you're cold. It's been so crazy here in St. Louis. We had a week ago, we had zero temperatures. And this week it's been, well, actually one day I think we hit 70. <laughs> Everybody was out today playing ball and golfing and and had shorts on, and tomorrow it's supposed to get down into the 20s. So there you go. No wonder we all have colds and flu and all that stuff. But I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Chester, you're doing fine? You look good? Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we play programs that we actually remember from when we were kids, old-time radio programs. Tonight, for instance, we have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. That one was never on television, was it? Was Philip Marlowe ever on TV? Anyway, I do uh, remember Philip Marlowe from the radio uh, a little bit when I was a kid. We have an episode of Armist Brooks, which we certainly remember from television and radio. And then we are going to follow things up with a really fun episode. One of the, one of the classic episodes of Gunsmoke. And I think that you're going to enjoy all of the uh, shows we have lined up. What I need you to do now is just sit back, relax, maybe get something to drink, and uh, get all situated, because we're going to get started in just a moment.
Well, to start things off this week, we are going to go out to the mean streets of Los Angeles. The year is 1950, and we're going to examine some of the dark corners, some of the alleyways, some of the underside, as we tour the city with that super sleuth, Philip Marlowe. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, this one was originally broadcast on June the 6th, in 1950 and it's a pretty good one i particularly enjoy verna felton in this episode and she plays both the old irish woman that you'll hear yelling down from upstairs and then she also plays one of the uh, main characters in the story bessie dunsmere this is kind of a fun story i think you're going to enjoy it so let's sit back relax and listen to The Uneasy Head on the adventures of Philip Marlowe. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Uneasy Head. Okay, okay. Everybody relax. Remember, them also serve who only stand around and wait. I'm calling them like I see them. Now you're dry again, chum. Another shot? Yeah. Say, uh, Slattery, you happen to know yeah. a guy named Sammy Archer? I was supposed to meet him here at six. That was an hour ago. There you are, chum. Another shot. What's yours, friend? Rye, wander on the side. Rye and the little help. Slattery, I asked you a question. Listen, chum, I sell whiskey. I sell gin. I sell beer. Pretzels I give away, but only pretzels. If you're busting with questions, try Louie. Louie? Yeah, a punk in the corner there, the guy with the patent leather hair. Oh. Louie welcomes visitors. Now, nah. you want to pay for this drink? Oh, wouldn't miss it for the world. Mind it for me, will you? Hey, okay. round boy, I'm going to forget I'm a lady. Your name Louie? That's me. Slattery tells me you might have some information I want. Could be. What race? Uh, don't want any dope on ponies, Louie. I'm looking for a guy. A guy like who? Archer. Sammy Archer. Do you know him? No. What's the matter? You welch on a bet? No. Well, thanks anyway, Louie. I got something good at Belmont. If you Check. We've been here twice. We've been once around. Coming up now. Ah, no luck, huh, chum? I thought maybe Louie could help you. He knows everyone in town. Yeah? Well, here's the Sammy Archer, a guy I never met. <sighs> Well, so long, Shem. Yeah, yeah. Don't go away mad, huh? Oh, not a chance, Slattery. After all, you... you... Hey. Hey, what kind of scotch was that? Tastes... Tastes like boiled cabbage heads. Slattery, what did you... That drink, it was dope. Are you no good? Two-timing... 
for a long time. A hundred years, maybe, I felt good. The temple was beautiful. Chinese beautiful. Everywhere like it woodwork that had the deep bottomless luster of a pigeon blood ruby. And a thousand shelves filled with ten thousand smiling ivory Buddhas. And a lovely streamlined dancing girl. Beaming in a white silk mandarin robe waiting my pleasure. But then suddenly the hundred years ran out. The lacquered woodwork was a bar, a Buddha's lines of whiskey bottles, a white silk mandarin gown and apron, the lovely dancing girl, Slattery. No. Oh. No. Oh. 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 Ah, easy, easy <laughs> now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Charm, oh. try this. Oh. It'll bring you around. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I. Oh, it's you. How dumb do you think I am, Slattery? Hey, hey, easy. No, no, wait. You got it wrong, chum. I didn't oh. slip you that mickey. Come on, now. Lay back. You're going to be okay. How long have I been out? Oh, about an hour. Oh. You're in the storeroom behind the bar. Now, just take it slow, Mr. Marlowe. How do you know my name? Well, I checked your wallet when you folded, chum. I saw you with a big-shot private dick from Hollywood. Yeah? That gave you my vote. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard all about you, Mr. Marlowe. The time you nailed that lousy Paul Miles who was hitting all the bars for some old-time protection. Yeah, but you uh, you should have said who you was. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Hey, Slattery, got any idea who got to my drink? No. It must have been the bird next to you, Ryan Water on the side. Maybe. You know him? Here, come on, help me out. Yeah, sure. Let's oh, ooh. Steady, easy now. Oh. There we are. Uh, no, no. Never seen him before. He shoved off when you went to see Louie. What'd he look like, Slattery? Thank Oh, well, uh, he smoked a cigar. Yeah? He had kind of a red face and was wearing a camel hair overcoat. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was nervous. He kept playing with a book of matches. He tore them out one at a time, and then he bent them up. Eh? Bent them up, huh? Yeah. You don't know his name, where he hangs out? No, zero chum, except that Louie heard him ask someone about how to get to Palm Springs, but, oh. uh, uh, Mr. Marlowe, uh, I do know about Sammy Archer. You do? I, yeah, I didn't want to talk up before Mr. Marlowe because I didn't know... Slattery, where can I find Archer? Well, uh, you ain't putting him on the spot for someone, eh? No, no, nothing like that. He called my office today, said he had some kind of a business deal with a guy he didn't trust. Wanted me to meet him here at the bar, get the details, and play bodyguard. Now, come on, tell me, Slattery, who is Archer? Where can I find him? Uh, he's a second-story man, Mr. Marlowe. He's a... You mean that... Yeah, yeah, he knocks off fancy places. Beverly Hills, most of the time. He's strictly a prowler. Oh, fine. Well, you could probably tag him over at 31 West Grand. He's got a basement apartment there. But, uh, look, you, uh, you ain't gonna be careless about the dope I gave out, are you? Don't worry. I'm not gonna work for him, Slattery. I still handpick my clients. Well, then, uh, why are you going there? For a lead, Slattery. A lead on a nervous guy in a camel hair coat. You see, I also handpick my enemies. <laughs> One West Grand Avenue was a dirty stone tenement propped up by a dirty stone stoop. A cracked pavement led to the basement apartment which showed a fuzzy slice of yellow light where the door was cracked open inches. So when I knocked, I was ready for almost anything. Just as long as it was on the seamy side. But I didn't expect it to come from overhead. You're wasting your time, big boy. When Sammy leaves his door open, you shouldn't bother knocking. You mean he's out? No, I mean he's in. And he's got the blind staggers. I know. I heard him falling over the furniture. But go ahead. See for yourself. If you'll pardon appearances. The big slob. 
lady was right. A tinny radio led me to the basement room where I found the two scarred wicker chairs and the single end table on hand turned over. Drawers open and overflowing pieces of discarded clothing everywhere. And in the middle of all that, sprawled along the edge of a threadbare couch that was weak in the springs, Sammy Archer. He was facing me, eyes closed, and wearing a faded blue bathrobe two sizes too big for him. And next to one hand that rested on the floor was an empty gin bottle sitting on a... on a clipping, torn out of a fashion magazine. On one side, an ad for a Bendix automatic washer. On the other, a picture of a diamond tiara. A jeweled crown, which the caption said belonged to Mrs. Bessie Dunsmuir of Palm Springs, California's most celebrated hostess. Well, it was a good time to awaken mine host by shaking well. <coughs> hey, Sammy. Archer, come on, pull yourself together. I should have known better. You can't wake a dead man by shaking him. Especially when he's got a knife buried in the middle of his back. Bill Marlowe, Remini. Hiya, Phil. Tribune got time for a few questions. Oh, we're up to our ears with the Dunsborough story. What do you got, Phil? Beauty, beast, a traffic accident. Skinny guy with a golf ball complexion and the name Sammy Archer. Ever hear of him? Sure, a two-time loser out of Joliet. Jewelry, team with a fence named Christy Roach. Roach, huh? Say, tell me, Tony, what is he... Hey, wait a minute, Remini. What did you just say about Dunsmuir? Huh? Oh, all that. Didn't you catch PM sheets? No. Someone got away with a precious tiara last night. Was insured for a hundred grand. They tag anyone for it? Not yet, but they're working on it. Seems that a gardener left her Palm Springs lash up the same time as a crown of diamonds. Gardener, huh? Yeah, was working under a phony name. Well, this, uh, this Christy Roach, what's he look like? Oh, big red face. Wears a cigar front and center. Thanks. Now I'm really getting someplace. That means what, Phil? Two feet from the corpse, Remini. There's a textbook on gardening. Corpse? What corpse? Where are you, Marlowe? 31 West Grand Avenue, where somebody stabbed Sammy Archer to death. Now listen, Remini, if you sit on this a while, I think I may be able to wrap it all up for you after a quick trip to Palm Springs. Why don't you use us at a law? What's your angle, Phil? A very personal one, kid. Like what? Like a Mickey that shredded the lining of my stomach. I don't like that kind of treatment. It's bad for the ego. I'll call you later. Goodbye. <laughs> the trip to Palm Springs was two and a half hours of hard driving through sterile wasteland. And there was plenty of time for me to add what always came out to the same thing. Sammy Archer, posing as a gardener, swiped the Dunsmuir tiara to pedal through Christy Roach, whom he feared. But Roach had double-crossed him, in a permanent sort of way, taking care of me and then headed for Palm Springs. Yeah, but there I got stopped each time. Why Palm Springs? Unless, of course, Archer's apartment turned inside out meant that the tiara was still hidden someplace in the desert hamlet. Yeah, that really would make it a cinch to find. Yes, sir? I'd like to see Mrs. Bessie Dunsmuir, please. My name is Philip Marlowe. Police or gentlemen of the press are no longer welcome. Good evening, sir. Steady, Jeeves. I have information about the tiara. 
Now tell that to your mistress, or you'll only be able to look down that long nose through one eye. This way, sir, if you please. The interior of the Dunsmuir shanty was strictly colossal. From a foyer the size and shape of the Union Station to a plush, leather-lined den that was about as cozy as a... as a parking lot. And Mrs. Bessie Dunsmuir herself fitted perfectly. Because as the renowned party giver glided into the room, I saw enough jewelry on her arms, ears, and neck to match Tiffany. Carrot for carrot. She listened intently while I brought her up to date. After that, she ushered me into an uncomfortable chair, rang for long nose, and then asked a sensible question. Mr. Marlowe. This Sammy Archer, what did he look like? Well, he was thin, Mrs. Dunsmuir, and sandy-haired. Does that fit your ex-gardener? Precisely. Now, perhaps, we're actually going to make some progress. Uh-huh. The police here haven't, then... Oh, uh, come in, Martin. Oh, a liqueur, Mr. Marlowe? Oh, no, thanks, no. Thank you, Martin. Mrs. Dunsmuir, yes. did you ever notice a red-faced man who smokes cigars hanging around, talking to Archer, perhaps? I, no, I never did. Did you, Martin? No, madam. I don't believe I did. Excuse me, madam. Good evening, Dunsmuir residence. Who's calling, please? One moment, sir. A Mr. Endicott, madam. Endicott? I don't seem to know any Endicott. Hello? I'm sorry, Mr. Endicott, but I don't seem to recollect... What? You... Well... Yes. Yes, of course. I'll see you tonight here. Goodbye. What's wrong, Mrs. Dunsby? Oh, just some more trouble over the estate. Ever since my husband passed on three years ago, we've had a mountain of trouble with his investments. I see. Well, about the tiara, Mr. Mrs. Marlowe, do what you can about locating it. You'll be rewarded handsomely by the insurance company if you're successful, I'm sure. They stand to lose $100,000. Yeah, but now, can't you tell me anything about Archer? I'm afraid not. I don't believe I ever said more than two words to him. Now, excuse me, Mr. Marlowe, and thank you for your interest. Martin, please show the gentleman out. Outside, I chalked the Dunsmuir interview off at face value. Proof positive that Sammy Archer and the sticky-fingered ex-gardener were one and the same. Then I headed for town on the first public phone, which was at a mobile gas station. There I swapped a $10 bill for a pocket full of quarters and started calling people back in L.A. who might know more about Christy Roach and the kind of connections he could have in Palm Springs. But after four near misses, I quit and stepped aside to let a big man with a beefy face that belonged on an English bulldog take his turn. However, he had other ideas, and he pointed them out bluntly with a shiny automatic. I wonder if you could help me, Sonny. I'm looking for a diamond tiara. You gotta be kidding. I wear a fedora besides Hold a... it right there. I have news for you, Sonny. While you were gabbing into the tube there, the station attendant left, closed shop, went into the bar next door. Out of earshot. So? So we're alone. And that means I'm going to... Do very oh. little... Stay right there, Marlowe. Well, well, well. Christy Roach. Red face, cigar and all. Glad to Shut see you. Shut up. Come on, we're getting out of here. Without our buddy then? Don't worry about him, Milo. He'll keep that way. Maybe a lot longer than you will. From the 
way Christy Roach had brought his gun barrel down on the bulldog's scalp, I knew he meant it when he jammed the same gun into the small of my back and marched me to my car. He didn't relax until we were driving down a dark side street toward the center of town. Well, kid, you jumped right out of the frying pan into the fire. You should have taken that first hint I tossed you. The Mickey? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was real cute. But it was too subtle, Christy. I didn't really peg you till I found Sammy Archer. Oh? It's too bad about Sammy. That was more or less of a mistake. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You only intended to carve your initials. The knife slipped. No, 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 no slips, kid. At the time, I thought Sammy had tried to pull a fast one on me, but I found out later he was just stupid. He had a great thing, and he was just too dumb to see it. As for you, turn east the first chance you get, and don't run any stop signs, you understand? Mm. Where are we going? Oh, no place in particular, just so it's nice and quiet. You know, you don't know when to quit, Marlowe, so now you're just one of the loose ends I've got to tuck in before I clean up my business here. <laughs> Take it easy on the corners. You told me to turn east the first chance I... I also told you to mind your manners! <laughs> Busting my wrist isn't going to help my driving much. It'll be worse the next time. I've got a lot of ground to cover yet tonight, and I want it smooth. That's too bad. Because there's a bump coming up fast right now. We picked up a tail. Huh? Take a look. Uh Cops. Yeah, cops. Call it laughing, boy. You're the skipper. Do we race them out of town or do I pull over? Pull over. Pull over. I don't know what that beef is, but play it straight, kid, because if it comes to shooting, you'll be the first to drop. Hey, can't you read, buddy? You're on a one-way street. You're telling me. Yeah, only you're going the wrong way. Yeah, I know. Well, you see, my friend... Uh... I warned you. What about him? Uh... Well, he's in a hurry, officer. I was taking him as far as the corner there. He said it was okay to come this way. I didn't. I'm a stranger here. Uh-huh. Also, you're a big boy now. You should make up your own mind. You're so right. Here, Mac, if you're in a hurry, you can go, but you better get out and walk. Thank you. Your friend here is going to be tied up for quite a spell. All right, let me see your license. Maybe the limb of the law and I should have nailed him right then and there. But there were still too many loose ends, and I wanted Christy Roach to clear them up for me. So I watched him walk out of sight while I listened with half an ear to a lecture on blind drivers. Yeah. Well, it was a small enough price to pay for the service rendered, so I thanked the officer for the ticket and then headed back to the filling station in a bulldog with a headache who might be in a mood to talk. But when I got there, I found he hadn't waited around. After that, I checked the neighborhood and was 15 minutes getting to first base, which turned out to be the bar of a French restaurant across the street. Run by one Monsieur Jean Coré, a high-octane number who apparently had overheard a phone call earlier. I immediately notified the police. Nothing, they said. Ah, believe me, my friends, the lowliest gendarme in Paris would have more sense. Throw away an important clue? Never. I tell you, our police... Mr. Coré, can I see you a minute? I? But of course, monsieur. What is it? Well, it better be in private, huh? It's about the Dunsmuir case. Ah, non de non. Uh, step this way, monsieur. All right. Uh, you naturally are a detective. Naturally, yeah. Now, look, I understand you overheard a phone call. Oh, yes. About an hour ago. A suspicious man called the uh, Dunsmuir place from here. What did he look like? Ah, oh, I am desolated, monsieur. I do not know. You said it was an important clue. I assume it was important. In a case as big as this, anything may be important. The smallest... Yeah, yeah. you made your point. You made your point. Go ahead. Bien. Uh. He, had an, he made an appointment. 
I only overheard, monsieur. Uh, the telephone is back this way in the alcove out of sight. Uh -huh. I was passing by right here when I heard the man ask for the Dunsby residence. He talked to his party and made an appointment. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't hear where or when, so I went on about my business. But suddenly, a memory exploded like a bomb in my head. Bessie Dunsmuir, the owner of the stolen tiara. I rushed like this, monsieur, to the phone. <coughs> oh, pardon, madame. Uh, but he was gone, monsieur. I called the police at once. The rest I can fill in. Now tell me something else, Mr. Corey. Did you happen to notice a man with a cut on his head around here a while ago? Uh, a cut? Yeah. Why, yes. One who looked as ugly as Satan himself. I saw such a one in the washroom. Ah, you mean he's suspect? Well, not exactly, no, but he's connected. Where can I find him? Oh, you ask me, monsieur. He was sick. I tried to help him, but he refused and left. You have no idea where he went? No, uh -huh. but wherever it was, I'll wager he was too wobbly to get there, monsieur. All right, in that case, I better make a quick call and uh, I... The telephone's set, yeah. anyway. Hello, Claire. Monsieur. Bessie Dunsmuir hasn't had a new husband for two whole years, Madame. my dear. I can't imagine how she keeps up that elaborate front of hers. Why, do you know You! Mm, what? Madame, hang up the telephone at once. I insist. Vitement. I beg your pardon? In the name of the police, monsieur is a detective. I demand you clear the line. I've paid my nickel and uh, I... Never mind, skip it. But I would like to know about those bent matches on the floor. Well, I don't know. What do they mean, Straight monsieur? Bent. I better skip the call and get going fast. Uh, you've been a big help, Corey. Maybe I can get you the Croix de Guerre. bent matches that littered the floor under the phone meant that the man who had made an appointment to meet with Bessie Dunsmuir had been the fence, Christy Roach. And to top it off, she'd lied about it. It didn't make any sense. But I added it to the rest of the question marks and made a beeline for Bessie's mansion. I parked a block away from the place, walked back, and let myself in through an iron gate at the side. And wound up in front of a car, half hidden in a clump of hibiscus bushes. A man was leaning in the open door with a match in his hand, reading the registration on the steering post. It was the bulldog I'd seen first at the gas station. When he saw me, his hand dived under his jacket for a gun, but I was on him before he could get it out. Oh, my head. You're due for another dose of the same, Buster, unless I get some fast answers. The time for games is over, and even a private detective can run out of patience. You're a private dick. Yeah. You, I don't get it. This car here belongs to the guy who helped you, Fence. Christy Roach. And if he's inside, I got Roach didn't help me, and you've got to do nothing till I find out about you. Who are you? Temple. Fred Temple. Amlin Insurance Company. Oh, no. We're covering the missing tiara. Only something's haywire. An insurance investigator? Yeah, yep. I'm not going to make it, fella. My head, it... You, you better get in there and, and stop... When he passed out, he sagged against me like a sack of wet wash. I stretched him out on the grass and after one look knew there was nothing more I could do. I went over to the house and quietly tried locked doors all the way around until I came to an open one in the butler's quarters. A bed lamp was on, so I braced myself for another meeting with Martin. When he came to the door, he was in his nightshirt. As soon as enough of his chin was showing, I swung! It was a distinct pleasure. I stepped over him and went through his rooms and on up the long hall of the main part of the house. I finally located Bessie in the leather-lined den. 
She was alone, but judging from the rate she was burning up the jittery cigarette in her hand, she expected trouble at any moment. <clears throat> Marlowe, how did you get in here? Why are you here? Just checking up on a lie, Bessie. Lie? I don't know what you're talking about. A late day tonight. Incidentally, he's due any second now. His car is outside. On my ground? Yeah, yeah. Surprised? What's so important about that? Now, look, you better tell me all about it, Bessie. No. Get out of here. Get out. Later. Right now, this setup is so full of holes, even the truth is leaking out. First roached the fence, figuring Sammy Archer, the guy who swiped your tiara, was pulling a fast one. And he changed his mind and got a new angle. Second, you brushed me off because actually you're afraid of finding the tiara. And third, the insurance company that's covering your loss is suspicious. Yeah, it's screwy, but it can only add one way. Like the tiara that was stolen from here yesterday is worthless. Are you insane? It was famous, fabulous, worth a king's ransom. Yeah, the original, maybe. Not the cheap duplicate. It may be fuzzy on the details, but the big pitch is easy. You dismantled the original and sold it probably quite a while ago. But not before you made a duplicate to keep up appearances so gossips wouldn't know you were going broke. Also, you kept up the insurance on it for the same reason. And the duplicate was stolen. People knew you'd been robbed, so you were forced to claim the insurance. But you knew that if the fake was recovered legally, you'd be prosecuted by the insurance company and disgraced. Sure, Christy Roach knows that, too. He's coming here for blackmail, isn't he? Why else? Come on, Bessie, you might as well... You, you might as well... Might as well what? What are you looking at? A cigar butt there on the floor. Oh. It's burned a hole in your rug. What happened to make Roach drop a cigar, Bessie? Where is he? I don't know what you're... Stay away from that desk! I mean it, Bessie. Next time it's for keeps. Now stay back. Where is he? In the closet there. I didn't know what else to do. You are right about the blackmail. About everything. I had to kill him. He'd have wrecked my life. Yeah. Just your way of life. That was top-heavy anyway. I guess so. But I thought I had to have it that way. <laughs> well, at least I'll give them all a big laugh on the way out. Bessie Dunsmuir's a great entertainer. <laughs> Bessie Dunsmuir, the world's greatest hostess, invited the police and reporters out herself. The fake tiara was found in the back of Roach's car. <laughs> and she wore it cocked over one eye for the benefit of the press, the photographers, and her <clears throat> friends. <laughs> By the time that party was over, it was almost dawn. Bessie was right. The papers came out and the giggles began. But Fred Temple drinking coffee under a head full of bandages didn't see much to laugh at. It's pathetic. Something awful sad there's someplace, Marlowe. I agreed. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Even a phony one. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, 
are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Verna Felton, Wally Mayer, Lou Krugman, Ben Wright, John Daner, Edgar Barrier, and Charlotte Lawrence. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. Now, a special announcement for Philip Marlowe fans. Next week, Philip Marlowe will be heard Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Be sure and be with us again next week on Wednesday evening when Philip Marlowe says... This time there was an innocent aboard, a noisy corpse and a quiet killer. But before I knew which was which, I'd mixed with all three while going 70 miles an hour. This is CBS, where Philip Marlowe will come to you on Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, and that one originally was broadcast on CBS back on June the 6th in 1950. Uh, did you enjoy that one? It was pretty good. It was a little hard to follow at times, wasn't it? Especially the the French uh, restaurant owner. A little, little difficult to understand. Which brings me up, there was a couple points. I want to talk about Verna Felton in just a moment. But before we do, there was a couple things that kind of jumped out at me on that one. One of them was this uh, this scene right here where uh, Marlowe was uh, just going into the apartment of the dead man at the beginning, and he picked up a magazine. Well, here, I'll just, I'll just play you a clip. And next to one hand that rested on the floor was an empty gin bottle sitting on a, on a clipping torn out of a fashion magazine. On one side, an ad for a Bendix automatic washer. On the other, a picture of a diamond tiara. Do you remember Bendix washing machines? And notice they said automatic washer. That was sort of the the buzzword of the 50s, automatic. Everything was new, automatic, automated. Bendix was a, a big brand. In fact, they were the ones, when I, I had to look this up, I do remember Bendix. And I remember that the word Bendix was almost synonymous with a washing machine. I think it was a little later that brands like Maytag and Amana and some of those uh, those other brands came out. But interestingly enough, and I don't want to bore you with all the details of the history of the washing machine, but washing machines that came out prior to World War II, a lot of them would do the, um, oh, what do they call that when the thing goes back and forth? What is it, Chester? You can't think of it either. Well, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. When they would do that, they would do that movement, but they didn't automatically go from one cycle to the next and have a timer and then spin them dry. They didn't do that. They just they just agitated. Yeah, thank you, Chester. They just agitated the clothes. And then you would you basically turn it off and take the clothes out and, and wring them. I, my, my grandmother used to have a ringer attached to her, uh, to her washing machine. She had, it was electric, but it was one of those without any of the, uh, the stages. It didn't go through the spin cycle and the, the, 
rinse cycle and all of that. Well, Bendix started doing that right after World War II. I've got a copy of a Life magazine here. It's either from 1950 or 1951. But it says, this month, the two millionth Bendix slipped off the uh, production line. Accelerated demand has driven Bendix production rapidly upward. In the last three years, as many Bendix washers have been made and sold as in the previous 10 years combined. Bendix is still America's most wanted washer. It is no longer a novelty. You can buy a Bendix anywhere. A great organization of Bendix automatic washer dealers bring automatic washing to every city and hamlet. How, what do you think they cost back in 1950? In uh, 19, early 1950, it says, the Bendix Dialomatic. Now, they had a couple different uh, models. So I don't know if this was the top of the line or the, or the cheaper one. But the Bendix Dialomatic sold for $169.95. You know, that was a lot more money. <laughs> that sounds really cheap today. But $169.95, people, I don't know, the average take-home pay back then for like, a say, a factory worker was probably around $200, $200 something like that, $250. Just to compare it now, I know washing machines today can get very expensive, but you can also buy inexpensive ones. I looked it up online, and I, I saw an Amana top loader, $247. What, Jester? That's what you have? An Amana? Yeah. Well, anyway, the Bendix were front-loading. And if you go in and look at some of their ads online, their, their photo ads, just go in and Google Bendix and then look at images. <laughs> they actually marketed these as a kitchen appliance, something you could build in under your countertops in your kitchen. Certainly a lot of things have changed as far as doing wash. I remember when my grandmother did the wash, she still used a scrub board. Even though she had that electric agitator, she would still take the clothes out, at least ones that I guess were stained or whatever. And she had a big bar of soap and she would rub it on there and then she would scrub it on a, uh, on a washboard. She had it in a big uh, deep sink on her back porch. And then, you know, she always used bleach on white things, but she would also use bluing. Do you know what that is? It would be a, it was a bottle, like a quart bottle or maybe a pint bottle. And it was almost like a blue dye and you would put just a capful in the water. And it was, it was real deep blue. But somehow that, when it mixed with the water, <laughs> made the clothes wider. And she always hung her clothes outside on the clothesline. And oh, they smelled good. Whenever she would do our laundry, you know, you'd put on her shirt. Of course, my mom did too. My mom had a clothesline. Always hung clothes on the clothesline. She had a regular washing machine, but I don't think we ever had a dryer when I was growing up. I guess we did later on, but most of my childhood, I remember uh, smelling clothes. When you put clothes on, they just smelled so fresh because they'd, they'd hang outside and dry in the in the air. Fond memories. And I don't know exactly when dryers came along. But anyway, that just reminded me of that when, uh, when Philip Marlowe talked about the Bendix, the Bendix ad. Hey, 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 you get down the fiddle and you get down the bow. Kick off your shoes and you throw them on the floor. Dance in the kitchen to the morning line for Louisiana Saturday night. What in the world was that, Chester? 
What was it? That was... <laughs> Chester said that was the sound of a washing machine. You know, when you when you overload a washing machine and it starts thumping at and and some guy was <laughs> using it to keep time to his let, let me hear that again. Oh, this is some guy singing to his overloaded washing machine. <laughs> Let's hear that again, Chester. Oh my goodness! It's it's uh, no no <laughs> no end to the creativity of our fellow men. Okay, getting back to Philip Marlowe here. I'm just going to play a, a quick scene again uh, when he's in in the French restaurant. But I would like to know about those bent matches on the floor. Well, what do they mean, Monsieur? I better skip the call and get going fast. Uh, you've been a big help, Corey. Maybe I can get you the Croix de Guerre. The chances are a lot of you already knew what the Croix de Guerre was, or is. I had to look it up. I did not know, and I thought, you know, what's, what's Philip talking about here? So you look it up, and it ends up that it's an award that uh, was given out by the French to soldiers who distinguished themselves by acts of heroism involving combat with the enemy. It was first created in 1915, and it consists of a square cross medal on two cross swords hanging from a ribbon. When I saw a picture of, of it, I recognized it. I've seen it before, but I never knew exactly what the Croix uh, de Guerre was. And it actually translates to being the cross of war. So Philip was giving him a distinguished, distinguished award for his uh, vigilance in helping him out here. Okay, I wanted to get on to Verna Felton for a minute. Verna Felton was just a delightful, delightful actress who did so much radio work and then went on to dozens and dozens of roles in television and also animated features. In radio, she played the mom on The Cinnamon Bear. She played the mean little kid's grandmother on The Red Skelton Show. She played Dennis Day's mother on The Jack Benny Show. She was a regular on Abbott and Costello, The Great Gildersleeve, and, and just so many other shows. And she had a pretty distinct voice. Lots of TV roles, too. Now, the one I remember her on was December Bride. And that was on from 1954 to 1959. It had previously been on radio, I think for one, maybe two years, two years, I believe. There's only, I think, three known copies of any of those episodes around. And the ones I've heard aren't in good sound quality. So playing them is pretty much out of the question, at least on our show. But in December Bride, it was it was kind of a, a, a funny show. It was on television for five years, and uh, it starred Spring Byington as Lily Ruskin, who was, uh, I guess, an older widow, and she w had gone to live with her daughter and her husband, who were played by Francis Rafferty and Dean Miller. And they also had a next-door neighbor by the name of Pete Porter, who was played by Harry Morgan. Well... Verna Felton played Lily's best friend, and her name was Hilda Crocker. And, and Verna Felton played this just as, as well as, as um, 
uh, Vivian Vance played Ethel on I Love Lucy. I mean, she was her sidekick, and a lot of it got to be very physical comedy. And she did most of it herself, even though she was already in her mid-60s when this show was, was done. She was on 156 episodes. And then after that, the Pete Porter character was spun off into another television show entitled Pete and Gladys with Harry Morgan and Kara Williams. And Verna Felden came back over to that one and played the same character, uh, Hilda Crocker. And she was in that for, I think, another 26 episodes or so. So very prolific. And then you saw her on uh, guest appearances and literally hundreds of television shows. But I remember her so well on December Bride, and I just always thought of her sort of as a grandmother character. It always makes me feel good when I hear her on a radio show. And of course, we heard her tonight, both as the Irish lady upstairs yelling down at, uh, at Philip, and then later as Bessie Dinsmore in this episode of Philip Marlowe. One of the things, though, that Verna Felton did that she perhaps may be best known for by many people is she played in a number of Disney cartoons, and later in some of the Hanna-Barbera ones too. But in the Disney cartoons, Verna Felton was the voice of Mrs. Jumbo, who was the mother of Dumbo. She played the fairy godmother in Cinderella. She was the queen of hearts in Alice in Wonderland. She was Aunt Sarah in Lady and the Tramp. She was uh, in Sleeping Beauty. She played Flora and Queen Leah. And in the animated movie, The Jungle Book, she played Winifred the Elephant, which was her last role, either live or animated. A real, real uh, prolific actress and somebody, we lost her in 1966, I believe it was. Verna Felton, what a, what a wonderful character actress she was. And this is uh, something that she may be best known for, a little song that came from Cinderella. Salagadoola, metrigaboola, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Put them together and what have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Salagadoola, metrigaboola, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. It'll do magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Now salagadoola means a metrigaboola-roo. But the thing about that does the job is bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Just a wave of my stick and to finish the trick. Gracious, what did I do? Oh, just leave it to me. What a gown this will be. It's like a dream, a wonderful dream come true. Yes, my child. Goodness me, it's getting late. Hurry up, dear, the ball can't wait. Have a good time, dance, be gay. Now off you go, you're on your way. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something Healing, something appalling, something for everyone a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! 
This week for our Comedy Corner, we're going back to high school. Madison High School, that is, for a very funny episode of Our Miss Brooks. This episode first debuted on January the 9th, 1949, so just a week after uh, New Year's, and it has to do with the New Year's Eve setting. The name of the episode is The Heating System, and I don't know, maybe I'm a little dense. I just don't quite understand what the title has to do with the episode. Maybe as we listen to it again, it'll become more clear to me. We just enjoyed Gerald Moore in an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Well, Moore makes another appearance here tonight in, in this comedy, and he plays the French teacher at Madison High School. And uh, I think you'll enjoy his French accent a little, I think, a little bit more than the uh, one that uh, we had of the French restaurant owner in, uh, in our tonight's Philip Marlowe. Okay, so let's travel back to January the 9th, 1949, for Our Miss Brooks. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Like many of her colleagues in the teaching profession, our Miss Brooks, Madison High School's English teacher, watched the year 1948 come to an end with mixed emotions. As she puts it, Although the year didn't start off brilliantly or develop too sensationally, it certainly wound up in a blaze of nothing. <laughs> of course, I did enjoy my two weeks' vacation. In fact, I spent most of the money I was going to borrow in the next three months. <laughs> the afternoon of New Year's Eve, Friday, December 31st, for those that still can't remember, I was chatting with my landlady, Mrs. Davis. Well, Connie, I guess you've got big plans for this evening. Frankly, I haven't got any plans at all, Mrs. Davis. Of course, I do have a date with the bashful biologist. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, what are you going to do, Connie? Probably the same thing we did last year. Pool our money and go to hip sings for dinner. <laughs> Fine way to spend New Year's Eve. Two Americans go to a Chinese restaurant, Dutch. <laughs> What are you going to do, Mrs. Davis? Oh, I'm going to visit my sister, Angela. She's so absent-minded, poor thing. She'll probably be surprised to see me, although it was only last week that she invited me over. What time do you think you'll be leaving, Mrs. Davis? Leaving? For where? <laughs> For your sisters. For my sister's what? <laughs> For your sister's house. Oh. oh, I'm glad you reminded me, Connie. I've been making... I've been making up my New Year's resolutions, and that's the first thing on the list. I've resolved to correct Angela's absent-mindedness. Angela's absent-mindedness. Uh, what else is on the list? What list? Maybe I'd better talk to Minerva the cat for a while. We were talking about New Year's resolutions, Mrs. Davis. Oh, yes, I'm sorry I wasn't paying attention, Connie. Tell me the rest of your resolutions. Well, first of all, I was resolved not to... What resolution? <laughs> we were speaking of yours, Mrs. Davis. And before you say my what, I'd like to ask you again the question I asked when we were both younger. <laughs> Namely, 
When are you going over to your sister's house? <laughs> Maybe you better not go out tonight, Connie. You sound very strange. <laughs> it's just the way you're listening. <laughs> or are you, Mrs. Davis? Of course I'm Mrs. Davis. <laughs> Now, you lie down and let me fix you some hot tea. I don't want any hot tea. I just want an answer. Meow. Thanks, Minerva. <laughs> now, about this evening, Mrs. Hello, Davis... Hello, Minerva. Want some milk, dear? Meow. I'll get you some in a minute. You were saying, Miss Brooks... This evening? Your sister's house? Yes, I'm going over there tonight. I know, Mrs. Davis. Meow. Right away, Minerva. What time, Mrs. Davis? It's, um, a quarter of four now that I'm always fast. <laughs> Get away from those curtains, Minerva. I'll fetch your saucer right away. Keep an eye on her, will you, Angela? I'll be glad to, Connie. <laughs> Come on, just hop into my lap, Mrs. Davis. Meow. There's a good dog. This is getting contagious. <laughs> Oh, coming. Excuse me, Minerva. Why, it's Monsieur Monet. Come in. Merci, mademoiselle. Thank you. It's nice you remember me. Remember you? Why, Monsieur Monet, you're Madison High's favorite French teacher. Oh, uh, for that, Miss Brooks, permit me to kiss your hand. <laughs> well, let's not give the other hand the complex. <laughs> Certainly not. I, uh, I trust that I'm not arrived at how you say inopportunity time. What? Oh, <laughs> no, this is very opportunity time. Won't you sit down, Monsieur Monet? Oh, thank you, Miss Brooks. But now that I'm teaching in America, I would appreciate it if you would call me in America. All right, what's your number? <laughs> no, 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 I mean call me Mr. Monet instead of Monsieur. Oh, certainly. Here you are, Kitty. Here's a nice saucer of... Oh, I didn't know anyone had come in. This is Mr. Monet, Mrs. Davis, our new French teacher at Madison. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Monet? How do you do, Mrs. Davis? I kiss your hand, madame. I'll hold your saucer, madame. <laughs> a lovely lady with a lovely hand. <laughs> Stick out your paw, Minerva. You're next. <laughs> If Mr. Monet came over to see you, Connie, I'm sure he doesn't want to talk to Minerva. I'll just take her into the kitchen. Come along, dear. There's a good kitty. Come drink your milk out here. So nice to have met you, Mr. Monet. Oh, likewise, I'm sure. She's very nice here, Mrs. Davis. But why she run away so fast? In the words of some of my pupils, why she took some powder and put it on the lamb? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean she took a powder or took it on the lamb? May we? Oui. She flew out of here like a bat out of Mr. the... Mr. Monet. <laughs> You're learning faster than your teaching. <laughs> now, Mrs. Davis was just being tactful. I guess she thought you wanted to be alone with me. Alone with you? But why, Miss Brooks? I'm a married man. Oh, I know, but Mrs. Davis doesn't know about your wife, Mr. Monet. Oh, oh, Miss Brooks, I, I don't know what plans you have made for New Year's Eve, 
But my wife, Elaine, and I would be very flattery if you would join us. Well, thanks, Mr. Benet. I'm flattery that you should ask me. <laughs> but as far as I know, Mr. Boynton is taking me out tonight. Oh, then you both must come. You see, this is not an ordinary party, Miss Brooks. Although we're all going to wear evening clothes and try to have the best possible time, Elaine and I, we realize that among school teachers, there are very few, um, how do you call it, malted millionaires? <laughs> Some of us are too thick to drink with a straw. <laughs> what you're trying to tell me is that the evening won't cost much money, is that right? Oh, it will cost you no money, Miss Brooks, but there is an admission charge. Kind of blood? <laughs> no, 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 just some old clothes. You see, I am in charge of a committee to send clothing to the poor people in France. Any sort of clothes would do, Miss Brooks. Anything that is made of cloth. Why, that sounds like a wonderful idea, Mr. Manet. I'll be delighted to come. And Mr. Boynton, do you speak for him as well? Mr. Boynton has been spoken for many times. The trouble is he doesn't answer. Oh, you mean about tonight. Yes, Mr. Manet, I feel sure I can speak for Mr. Boynton. Oh, fine. I'll be leaving then. I'll walk you to the door, Mr. Manet. Oh, my address is uh, 9066 Shawn Drive. Try to get there before 10. And I'm sure that as my students say, we will have a ball. <laughs> I'm sure that we will. Yes, until tonight then, Miss Brooks. Stay in the groove. Oh, Natch, Mr. Manet, Natch. <laughs> and Mr. Manet. Yes? Don't take any wooden francs. <laughs> Mr. Monet left, I tried to get Mr. Boynton on the phone to tell him about the invitation. But ours is a party line, a four-party line to be exact, and every time I picked up the receiver, it was in use. Always careful not to lose my temper, I sat by the phone and drummed lightly on the top of the table until my five fingernails were impaled in the mahogany. <laughs> then I tried it once more. As sure as my name is Lucy Schofield, that's the only way to treat men, Emma. Believe me, if I had to do it all over again, Emma, I'd... Oh, excuse me a minute, dear. I think I smell my roast burning in the kitchen. Now, that's a coincidence, Lucy. I smell my drapes burning in the living room. <laughs> Hang up now. I'll call you back. So much for Emma and Lucy. I'll try it again. Oh, it worked. At least I can dial now. I hope Lucy doesn't think Emma was kidding her. Happy New Year, Daisy. Is Fred there? <laughs> This isn't Daisy, and Fred isn't here. Will you please get off the line? I'm trying... get off the line? Just what I said. Get off this line. Oh, Mrs. Telephone Company, huh? <laughs> Look, this happens to be a party line, and I happen to be the party using it at the moment. Oh, well, that's different. If you want me to come to a party, I'll be glad to talk to you. <laughs> My name is Frank Pollock. What's yours? It doesn't matter. I only... Say, Frank. Frank, are you still there? I'm still there. I was mighty nice of you to call me, Daisy. What I think of the way I treated you. <laughs> the shameful, horrible way I treated you. Don't cry, Frank. I had it coming. No. Now, will you please hang up? Your bottle is falling out of the chandelier. <laughs> well, thanks, Daisy. You're a great girl. And tell Fred to give me a buzz when he gets in. Now. <laughs> He's getting an early start. When a body meets a body, he's had too much rhyme. Mm -hmm. 
Hello, Mr. Boynton. This is Miss Brooks. I assume we still have a date for tonight. Tonight? Oh, this is Friday, isn't it? Yes, December 31st. The 31st, eh? Yes, you know, the day we celebrate the appearance of the first enchilada north of Laredo, Texas. <laughs> I know it's New Year's Eve, Miss Brooks. What are we going to do to kill a few hours together? We'll think of something, you mad, impetuous boy. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's why I called. Mr. Monet and his wife are having a little impromptu party at their house, and they've invited us. Uh, what kind of party? Well, you have to have some old clothes, and then you should... Hello? Is that you, Emma? I didn't quite understand you before. No, this is not Emma. This is your friendly, cooperative, party-line neighbor. Oh, the magpie. Magpie? <laughs> 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 who are you talking to? I'm talking to nonstop Nelly, the human dial tone. <laughs> now, well, will, you, never will you please stop this filibuster and get off the line? Well, the phone company will hear about this. Are you there, Miss Brooks? Yes, Mr. Boynton. As I started to tell you, although it's a formal party, we're supposed to have some piece of apparel that we can... Happy New Year. Oh, not again. Uh, who's that? Well, it's about time you got home, Fred. That is not Fred. Oh, it isn't, huh? No, it isn't. Uh, as Fred's oldest and closest friend, I demand to know who it is. <laughs> now, see here, old man. I'm not your old man. <laughs> I don't even know where your old man is. I don't even know where my old man is. New Year's Eve, but I don't even know where my old man is. Oh, look, Mr. We'd better hang up now. You can't, Daisy, you can't hang up. Not without you tell me where my old man is. Daisy. Listen, Mr. Boyd. All you have to do is, is bring some old clothes with you. What's that? I old don't know. Hey, 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 put on your tux, bring some old clothes, and pick me up in a couple of hours. I gave you a I'll see you later. introduce you to Fred? Tell me that. Who introduced you to Fred? You did, Frank, and I love you for it. <laughs> if you don't get off this phone, I'll have you thrown out of the bar you're calling from. Bar? Oh, is that where I'm calling from? Bless you, Daisy. You've helped me find my old man. <laughs> sure, he's sitting on the stool next to me. <laughs> I better hang up now. Fred hates it when I talk to strangers. Oh, Mrs. Davis. Yes, Connie. I wonder if you'd give me a hand. I've been invited to a formal party tonight, and I just don't know what to wear. Well, what have you got, Connie? Oh, nothing. That is nothing but an old evening gown I've had for five years. Well, come on into your room, Connie, and we'll look it over. Here we are. It won't take long to find in my closet. Well, let's see. Here's a skirt and blouse. The suit I got two years ago. Here's one of the dresses I wear to school. Here's the other one. <laughs> Oh, there we are, my pride and joy. Why, that's real pretty, Connie. And look at the fringe. Silly moths, they left the best part. <laughs> While I'm in here, I'd better find something to donate as well. Donate? Yes, the price of admission to the party is some old clothing. I know I've got some because I've been wearing it. Oh, dear, I forgot to tell you, Connie, but just last week when the Goodwill truck came around, they pick up old clothes, too, you know. I gave away everything of mine I could possibly spare. Well, that's all right, Mrs. Davis. You're not going to the party. I know, but uh, I also gave away a big bundle of your stuff. 
You had it lying in the closet, and Mrs. I Davis, that it... was for the cleaners. I had some of my newest clothes in that bundle. 1945 stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. Maybe you can borrow some old clothes to give. Well, I guess I'll have to. I know. I'll go over to the Conklins. He's got one suit I know could use an ocean voyage. Come on in. Thanks, Harriet. Are your folks at home? Mother's out shopping, but Daddy's upstairs taking a nap. Come on into the living room, won't you? Walter Denton and I were just playing pass it. Look who's here, Walter. Well, if it isn't my favorite English teacher. Sit down, Miss Brooks. Harriet and I were just playing pass it. So she told me. What's pass it? Well, it's a game we read about. Lots of high school kids play it. All you do is take a piece of Kleenex and hold it to your nose by sniffing. And then with both hands behind your back, you pass it down a long line of kids by sniffing it away from your neighbor. Oh. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. But where's the long line of kids? Oh, it's just as much fun with the two of us. More. <laughs> Saves wear and tear on the Kleenex, too. Uh, Harriet and I go steady. That's why I'm here. But what brings you to the dread sanctum sanctorum of your school principal during a holiday? Please, Walter. You make Daddy sound like an ogre. Yes, Walter. Just because Mr. Conklin is my superior at school is no reason for me to live in dread of him. Harriet! Ah! <laughs> time to tell him you're here, Miss Brooks. You see, he's going to a big party tonight and wants to get some rest. Well, then maybe you kids can help me out. I've just got to get some old clothes somewhere right away. Why, Miss Brooks? The ones you've got on look fine. <laughs> Thanks, Walter, I think. But I'm talking about clothes I can donate. Golly, Miss Brooks, Mother just gave away every stitch we could possibly spare to the Salvation Army. Wait a minute. Daddy's new tuxedo is being delivered today. And he's got an old suit of evening clothes that I'm sure Mother would love to see given away. Say no more, Harriet. Do you think you can get it without waking your father? Well, sure. It's right here in the hall closet. Here it is, Miss Brooks. This is the suit Daddy wore when he first became a principal. Let me look at that. Hmm, I'll bet he was a sensation in these tales. Why? There are three of them. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, that's just where one of them is torn. You could patch that up in a jiffy. Thanks very much, Harriet. It's cloth anyway. Well, I'll be getting along home now. Mr. Boynton's picking me up soon, and I've got to see if my evening gown still fits me. I've had it for over five years. Oh, I think that's nice, Miss Brooks. What's nice, Walter? How you and your evening gown have grown old together. <laughs> oh, not that you're falling apart at the seams or anything. I mean... Well, to me, you're still all wool and a yard wide. You have just failed in English for 1949. Would you care to try for 50? Uh, hello. Hello, Mr. Conklin? Yes, who's this? This is Kane from Kane's Classy Cut Clothes with four Ks. Oh, yes. Where's my tuxedo, Kane? You promised it to me by five o'clock. It's ten of now. Oh, that's what I'm calling about, Mr. Conklin. I can't get the suit to you by five o'clock. You can't? Well, then when will it get here? Next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Next Tuesday? But I've got a very important party to attend tonight. Oh, no, no, I've no, got... now, please, Mr. I... Conklin, don't yell at me. What? Yell at the lapel makers' union. They went out on strike yesterday. 
But isn't there something you can do? Somebody who can fix now, this? Now, calm yourself, you, Mr. Conklin. Even if I gave the suit to another shop to be finished, it wouldn't do any good. The buttonhole boys went out in sympathy. <laughs> but how could you... Why did... When did this... No, 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 how were you easy, able... Mr. Conklin. When my take suit... it easy. There my blood to... pressure is just as high as yours. So let's be good to ourselves and exercise some control. Control? But how can I... What will I... Even if now, I have... Now, there's no well, use no reason both of us aggravating. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Conklin. Happy New Year! Happy Sh- <laughs> Harriet! Yes, Daddy, we're here in the living room. Harriet, I've had a great disappointment. My taxi. Oh, hello, Denton. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Conklin. We're playing Pass It. Want to sniff this Kleenex off my nose onto your nose? <laughs> I can think of nothing more loathsome to do. <laughs> Harriet. You know where your mother put my old suit of evening clothes? Your old suit, Daddy? Yes, yes. I've got to wear it tonight. Oh, but that old evening suit isn't any good, Mr. Conklin. It would make you look like a, like a head waiter in a cabaret. A head waiter in a... That happens to be one of the finest dress Please, suits. Please, Daddy. Th- I gave it to Miss Brooks just a little while ago. She and Mr. Boynton are going to a party where you have to bring some old clothes to get in. What? That does it! Not only do my teachers openly flaunt my wishes about fraternizing, but they take my evening clothes along with them. <laughs> Children, do you know what I'm going to do? No, we don't. But I know one thing. If I was Miss Brooks, I'd hop in bed and pull the covers up over my head. <laughs> How does Old Faithful look on me, Mrs. Davis? Lovely, Connie. And fringe is more popular than ever. It's amazing what a tuck here and a stitch there will do. About what time did Mr. Boynton say he'd be over? About this time, Mrs. Davis. I'll get it. Good evening, Mr. Boynton. Won't you come in? Oh, thanks, Miss Brooks. Say, that's an interesting overcoat you have on. Raccoon, isn't it? Yes. It's a relic of my college days. Do you mind if I hang it up here? It's pretty warm. Go right ahead, Mr. Boynton. Then come on into the living room. All right. Oh, that's better. Well, Miss Brooks, you certainly look lovely tonight. Thanks, Mr. Boynton. You look... Mr. Boynton, I told you we were invited to a New Year's Eve party, didn't I? Well, yes, you did. Do you always go to a formal party in white flannels with a blazer and a beanie? Formal, but you said you had to have some old clothes to get in. Some odd piece of wearing apparel is what you told me. Oh, great. I hope your sneakers are vulcanized. (laughs) I don't understand, Miss Brooks. Just what kind of a party is this? It's a formal party, Mr. Boynton, but the price of admission is some old clothes to be shipped abroad. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I don't usually go to parties on New Year's Eve. You don't? Well, how do you like to spend the evening, Mr. Boynton? Well, I usually have an early dinner, then catch the first show at the movies and hit the sack about 10.30. What does your doctor say about such carrying on? (laughs) Look, Mr. Boynton, I've already accepted for both of us, and... Wait a minute. I've got a dress suit that might fit you. Then we can bring the stuff you've got on as our, our admission. Just go into my room, Mr. Boynton, and take off those clothes. Oh, Miss Brooks, what in the You'll world... You'll find you... a suit of evening clothes right on the bed. Please slip them on. Mrs. Davis! Yes, Connie? Have you finished sewing Mr. Conklin's tail together? Just finishing now, Connie. Here it is, as good as new. It would make any head waiter proud. Oh, hello, Mr. Boynton. My, what a nice beanie. Three propellers. <laughs> 
Unless you tell me what this is all about, Mrs. Davis. Well, you're going to an ideal source for information. Just take this suit and put it on, Mr. Boynton, please. Well, all right, Miss Brooks, but this is all highly irregular. Now, Mrs. Davis, let's go into your room. I want you to fix my hair in the back. I'm wearing it up, you know, and it's not quite high enough. My goodness, Connie, how high do you want it? High enough so that I'll have to stand on a chair to pull it down. Well, it doesn't fit too badly, I get. Uh, Miss Brooks, I've got the suit on. That's fine. I'll just be a few minutes. Oh, would you answer that, please, Mr. Boynton? Mrs. Davis is still rummaging in my scalp. All right. Oh, well, it's Mr. Conklin. Good evening, sir. Good evening. I'd like a table down front, but not too near the drum. <laughs> Oh, it's you, Boynton. Uh, uh, yes, sir. Won't you come in? No, I won't come in. Boynton, how did you... When did you... Who gave you... If it what wasn't you doing? New Year's Eve, I'd swear that Mr. Conklin had come by. Oh, it is you, Mr. Conklin. Miss Brooks, I demand the return of my evening clothes at once. Your evening clothes? I cannot tell a lie, Mr. Boynton. Take it off. Take it off? Take it off! Well, don't just stand there, Mr. Conklin. Applaud a little. <laughs> Get ready, everyone. It's 12 o'clock. Turn up the radio. Well, Miss Brooks, nice party, no? Oh, very nice, Mr. Manet. Ah, but it's midnight now. The band is playing Auld Lang Syne, and everyone should be kissing someone. Where's your Mr. Boynton? Oh, haven't you heard, Mr. Manet? He hit the sack at 10.30. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, Mr. Boynton didn't show me such an exciting New Year's Eve, but we had another date the next day, today. After spending the afternoon at the zoo, we came back to my house. Uh, do you mind if I turn on the radio, Mr. Boynton? Oh, not at all, Miss Brooks, but I'm afraid I can't stay to listen to it. Why not? Well, actually, I didn't get into bed on New Year's Eve until ten minutes of eleven. I've got to catch up on my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and so, as Philip Boynton faded slowly into the West, I bade him farewell in true Zulu fashion by saying, Tunga Lunga Bimba Lakta, which means, how can you leave now? Jack Benny has switched over to CBS. <laughs> Next week, tune in to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Palmolive Soap, Your Beauty Hope, and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, dream girl hair. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Stay tuned now for Lum and Abner, Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
From January 9th, 1949, that was Our Miss Brooks. Name that episode was The Heating System, although I still haven't quite figured out why. And, of course, that uh, was played over CBS. A couple things I wanted to uh, bring out in there. Um, they made reference to the movie The Lost Weekend. When uh, Connie talked about uh, the bottle up in the chandelier, that was a direct reference to a famous scene in the movie The Lost Weekend with Ray Milan, which won Best Movie. And I was thinking it was like 48 or 49. And that's why the reference would be so timely in, the, in this show from 1949. But actually, the movie came out in 1945. But it was one of the first motion pictures that really addressed the subject seriously of alcoholism and didn't make it some kind of a joke. And it talked about how a person could become compelled to have this uh, insatiable desire to drink and how they would try to protect their source of alcohol. And one of the ways was by hiding their bottles. And one of them was in the chandelier. And there's a famous scene where Raymond Land can't remember where he hid his bottle. And all of a sudden he looks up and he sees the shadow of it in the, in the chandelier. And that's the reference that was made there tonight in this episode of Our Miss Brooks. And the other thing is uh, the party line. Now, we've talked about party lines before. If you ever had a party line, you know how frustrating that could be, that you would go to pick up the phone to make a call and one of your neighbors was already on the line. And a lot of times you didn't, weren't really sure who they were. It wasn't necessarily your next door neighbor. It might be somebody on the next block over or somebody three houses down. You know, you, you could go to pick up the phone or somebody could be calling you and you'd get a busy signal and they'd get a busy signal because somebody was tying up your line because you might have three or four families on that one line. And at least in California, when I was a kid, the only way you could avoid having a party line is, first of all, it was a lot more expensive to have a private line. And secondly, it was uh, you had to have a good reason, like you were a doctor or something like that, some type of emergency situation where you had to be able to be reached. And other than that, you had party lines. And I would say that went on probably throughout the 50s, early 50s. I think they were probably gone by... 57, 58, something like that, where everybody started getting private lines. But party lines, boy, they were really something. Hello, who's that speaking, please?
Well, as you can tell from that music, it is time for us to travel back to the Old West. We're going to Dodge City, Kansas. The year is 1874, and we're going to walk up Front Street shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we'll no doubt bump into Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on this really fun episode of Gunsmoke. This one was originally broadcast on the uh, 10th of October in 1952. So it's one of the early episodes of Gunsmoke. And it is a wonderful, wonderful story that you're just just gonna really get a kick out of. It's a mystery, it's a whodunit, it's uh, some comedy thrown in, and you'll, you're going to meet one of the most unforgettable characters <laughs> you'll ever hear on Gunsmoke. And I'm just going to say that the characters played by Jeanette Nolan I'm not going to give anything else away. So relax and enjoy this episode of Gunsmoke from October the 10th, 1952, entitled Hinka Do. Around Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke.
Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Morning, Miss Adam, eh? Hiya, Marshal. Good morning, Tom. Hey, Matt! Wait a second. Huh? Oh, hiya, Doc. Oh, on my way over to jail. After you. Oh? You heard about the Longhorn? No, what about it? Uh, you haven't heard or you wouldn't ask. Well, heard what, Doc? Well, um... Uh, I'll walk along with you, if you're heading that way. Well, as a matter of fact, I was heading that way. Hey, what's all that crowd out in front there for? <laughs> in due time, Mac. In due time. <laughs> you know, Doc, there's only one thing that makes you happier than having a secret, and that's to collect your coroner's fee. Yeah, might get a fee out of this, too, for it's over. <clears throat> uh, no wonder you're all worked up. Hey, have you, have you heard about the Longhorn? It's the dog dog thing. It's the longhorn. The dog dog thing I ever come across. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Uh, oh, oh, hiya, Chester. Say, so you heard about the longhorn? No. No, Chester, I have not heard about the longhorn. What? He's upset, Chester. He's the only man in Dodge who hasn't heard. Look, so help me, Doc, if this is one of your practical jokes. Oh, no, 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 no. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> You'll see. Uh, will you pardon me, ma'am? Let him through. Uh, pardon me, please. Let me through, Excuse please. me. Well, Mr. Dillon? What do you think of it, Matt? Aside from the misspelled words. The Longhorn been closed all morning? Yep. Locked tight. That sign was on the door daylight. The Longhorn Saloon will open at 8 o'clock tonight with new management and a new policy. Everybody welcome. Signed the new manager, Mamie. Mamie? That's a woman, Max. Lately of Kansas City, St. Louis, and Points East. Well, I don't know, Mr. Dillon. My word. We never had a woman running a saloon in Dodge City before. And we won't now, Chester. The boys won't let her last an hour, I'm afraid. <laughs> be kind of fun for that hour, though. And another thing, if this Mamie is the new manager, what's happened to Herman Bleeker? Well, I don't know. He must have sold it to her. He didn't say anything about it yesterday morning. That's right. I saw him over at the liver stable in the afternoon, showing off one of them fancy vests he's always ordering. And he never said one word about it. Well, you know that little poppin' Jay. He's flighty. Probably happened sudden. Yeah, too sudden, Doc. Even for Herman. Say, come think of it, I haven't seen him all morning. And he's usually strutting up and down Front Street, preening himself like a powder pigeon. He's probably upstairs there, sleeping in, getting ready for the opening tonight. We gonna be here, Mr. Dillon? Maybe. Mr. Dillon? Huh? Oh, yeah, Chester. We're gonna be here. <laughs> I'm sorry, boys, but she's upstairs, said she'd be down about 8 o'clock, and that's all I know about it. 
Now, if you want to order anything, let's hear it. And if you don't, just shut up. Say, the boys are acting kind of rambunctious, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, she'll wish she stayed in St. Louis on my points east. Matt! Matt, I, I was talking to the bartender. I asked him what she looks like, and he said if he told me... I wouldn't believe it. Now, the fellow I'd like to talk to is Herman Bleeker. Yeah, well, nobody's seen hiding here him. You know, Matt, uh, I'm beginning to wonder, too. Howdy, strangers! Hey, Welcome to the Longhorn! I'm Mamie, the new owner. Uh, Mamie? My gracious sakes alive. 190 pounds if she weighs an ounce. Yeah, that bartender was right. <laughs> I wouldn't have believed it. Boys! Looks like we're going to be doing business together, so let's get things straight right in the beginning. Now, in the first place, the minute you stick your foot inside that door, you're on my stomping ground. I'm the boss of this shebang, and don't you ever forget it. When I tell anybody to hop, he hops. Is that clear? (laughs) Now, tell you what, I aim to give the squarest deal in town. All the liquor here is going to be aged over 30 days, and the dancing girls aged under 30 years. The liquor is straight, and the girls are graceful. There's only four aces in every deck, and the cards only read from the front side. You'll get a fair shake for your money, but there ain't going to be no fandango. And another thing... Mister! I'm talking. Well, so am I, old Excuse me, boys. Oh, looks like it started, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, wait a second. He paid for his drink? Yes, ma'am. All right, you wall-eyed little maverick. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> Throw his head out after him. <laughs> now, as I was saying, boys, I just won't stand for no fandangling. Now, maybe some of you figured I was wearing this six-shooter for a decoration. When I just cast your eyes on that ace of spades I got tacked up on the back wall. Now! For the land's sake, did you see that draw, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, and she got the card, too. Oh, the boys won't give her no trouble, man. All right, boys, the first one's on the house. And it's the last free one you'll get. And the only credit I give is for funeral expenses. Belly up, boys! Well, sir, Mr. Dillon? Chester, I want to talk to Herman Bleeker more than ever. Say, you know, she's big enough to... Uh, well, I'll bet she forced Herman to sell. Yeah, maybe. Doc, I'll be right back. I, uh, I want to talk to her. Oh, that you was nothing, boys. Oh, you're the marshal, huh? Uh, yeah, that's right, ma'am. My name's Dylan. Proud to shake your hand, Mr. Dylan. Well, thank... <laughs> thank you, Miss Mamie. <laughs> Welcome to Dodge City. Mighty decent of you to express the sentiment, Marshal. I reckon you won't get much business around the Longhorn. I'll take care of any trouble that's around here. Uh, it'd be quite a change. The boys used to push Bleeker around every now and then. Oh, that runty little prairie dog. I, uh, I didn't know he was planning to sell, Miss Mamie. He must have made up his mind in a hurry. Yeah? I made him an offer and he took it. Just like that. Uh, he found himself some new living quarters, I suppose. Oh, yeah. He moved right out last night. Oh. Mm-hmm. I, uh... 
I wonder where he's holed up. Huh? There, there are a couple of things I'd like to see him about. Well, now, uh, I'll tell you, I'm afraid he left town, Mr. Dillon. I think he said something about taking the Santa Fe to St. Louis now that I remember. Oh, I, I see, I see. Well, that, that's too bad. I, I'd sure like to have seen him. Uh, well, I'll probably drop in now and then, Miss Mamie. Sure! Anytime, Marshal! For you, it's on the house! <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. What'd you find out, Mr. Dillon? Let's get out of here, Chester. Coming, Doc. Yeah, sure, oh, yes, with both ears a flapping. Well, boys, what do you think of her? Oh, my gracious, Mr. Dillon, I sure would hate to meet her in the dark. Oh, why, she's got a voice like a buffalo. Ain't it awful? It just itches your ears, don't it? Why, the woman's a human monstrosity. I still haven't seen Herman. Huh. What'd she say, man? She says she thinks he left town. Oh, Chester, I want you to check all the rooming houses and hotels along Front Street. I'm going to go to the railroad station and the stage lines. I'll meet you over at the jail. Huh? Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. You say mad. I think Herman keeps a horse over at the Liberty Stable. Yeah, I, I thought of that, Doc. I wonder, would you, would you be good enough to look into that for well, me? Why, sure, be happy to. You know, Mr. Dillon, she is an awful straight shot. Yeah, Chester. I know. <laughs> You here, Matt? Oh, uh, yeah. Come on in, Doc. Ah, well, his horse is still over at the stable. He didn't tell them anything about leaving. He didn't leave, Doc. Mamie came in on the 9 o'clock train last night. Only one train out after that around midnight. He wasn't on it. And he didn't buy a ticket on the stage, uh, either. Uh, uh, yeah, see, now what did I tell you? Matt, that settles it. Yeah, of course he... May have moved into one of the hotels. No, sir, Mr. Dillon, I'm afraid he didn't. Oh, uh, well, what'd you find out, Chester? That nobody in this town has seen Herman Bleeker since around 9 o'clock last night. Matt, I knew I'd get me a fee out of this, one way or the other. Well, don't spend it yet, Doc. <coughs> what? Buenos noches, senores. Oh, Manuel, um, come on in. Come Gracias, senor Dillon. Well, what's on your mind? Pues, senor... I was at the railroad depot when I hear you ask about the little one, uh, El Señor Bleeker. No. And the other, the Señora. Oh, there is much woman on that one. Well, there's no argument there, Manuel. Señor, last night I have seen something which is strange. No? I am come home very late, one hour, two hours before dawn. I was visiting a friend, you understand? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I understand. You see, I am walk home in much hurry, and it is very dark, senor, when at once I see this lantern in the arroyo behind the Longhorn Cantina. Oh, a, a lantern, you say? I am think, what is this? So I wait, and this lantern is come toward me, and when it is close, oh, this woman who I have no see one like her, oh, what a scare. Well, what was she doing in the arroyo? I do not know, but but it's one thing I forget. She has carried something in her hand. Well, what was it, Manuel? A shovel, senor. 
find anything, Matt? Well, there's something here, Doc. But I can't quite... Hold the lantern over here, will you, Chester? Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. I found something here, if I can just... Just get it loose. Lantern all right, Mr. Dillon? Can, can you see what's here? Uh, yeah, it's, it's fine, Chester. Yeah, I got it. Oh. It's a boot. Yeah, here, here's the other one. Yeah. Well, all that fancy stitching. Matt, those are his. I've seen them on him. Yeah, so have I, Doc. Yesterday, in fact. Here, take him, Chester. Yes, sir. There's a bundle of some kind here. Oh, you found the body, huh? No, it's it's clothes, I think, Doc. Let's have a look. Yeah. That's all there is, too. The hole doesn't go any deeper. It's hard pan on the bottom there. Hold the lantern down, Chester, and let me right. let me get this unwrapped. I'm not so sure about that coat, Mr. Dillon. A lot of them like that around town. Yeah, I know, but take a look at this fancy vest. Oh, that's Herman's. Nobody else in Dodge City would ever wear a thing like that. Well, from the looks of it, he won't be wearing it again. How you coming, Doc? You know, don't rush me, Matt. Don't rush me. I haven't made one of these blood tests in years. <laughs> if you ask me, I don't see any use of making one now. <laughs> well, let me see. Pour the precipitate into here. What other kind of blood could it be except human? Doc, I only want to be sure, that's all. All right, all right. Uh, let me see. Five drops of the sulfate. <laughs> you sure look uncomfortable, Matt. Well, how'd you like to try arresting that lady, Doc? Not my job to arrest her. <laughs> All I'm doing is stopping up these loopholes Matt's trying to wiggle out of. <laughs> well, that's real decent of you, Doc. Real decent. <laughs> no, sir, Matt, I don't recall you ever being in such a predicament. Oh, of course, I remember the night you shot it out with the Barkley boys over in the Alifaganza. There were three of them. And you did not turn a hair. <laughs> and then that other time when you got dry gulched by the Platte River gang. All right, and... Doc. All right, all right. But this is different. If I go to arrest that woman, she's just crazy enough to start a gunfight. Oh, it's a problem. It's a problem, all right. Now, let's see. We'll just shake this up and warm it a bit. Yeah. You know, there is one thing, though, Mr. Dillon. Shooting at a mark's not the same as a gunfight. Maybe she wouldn't even resist. You really believe that, Chester? No, sir. Oh, she ain't a woman. She's a human catastrophe. <laughs> she sure is for Matt. <laughs> well, there's still a chance we may be going off half-cocked here. That blood could have got on Herman's vest a dozen different ways. Well, we'll soon see. Uh, let's see now. A couple of drops of reagent. Uh, one, two, three, four. Ah, yeah, yeah. And we'll look for the color change. So, turn up the lamp a little bit, will you, Chester? Uh, all right. Oh. Wow. Well. <laughs> mm -hmm. yes, well. 
Well, Doc? Well, it's tough luck, Matt. <laughs> it's human blood. was going over to Longhorn to talk to Mamie. How come the jail? Ah, she'll keep, Doc. She's not going anywhere. Yeah, looks cut and dried to me, Matt. It might not if you were in my shoes. Uh, come on in, boys. You know, Mr. Dillon, when I talked to the barkeep, Finnegan, he said that when he showed up this morning to open the saloon, that woman was already inside waiting for him. She told him to come back at 8 o'clock tonight. And he didn't see no sign of Herman Bleeker. Oh, well, there's another nail in your coffin, Matt. Doc, <laughs> if you keep this up, I'm going to deputize you and take you along with me. He, he sure can have my job, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> no, you don't. I will not lift a hand in anger against a woman. <laughs> Especially that woman. Keep thinking we could still be wrong. Oh, somehow. real diehard. Look, now suppose Herman hurt himself some way. <laughs> How? And he wanted to get away by himself and, and, and recuperate. Where? And suppose he, he, he didn't want anybody to know about uh, it. Why? So he decided to stay with some friend. Who? And, well, maybe... Uh, come on, Chester, let's go. There she is at the end of the bar. What are you going to do, Mr. Dillon? Take her in, Chester. Maybe she'll talk when she's arrested. i got to get that gun away from her some way. It's not going to be easy. It's got to be done. I've never drawn a gun on a woman yet, and I'm not starting now. If I could just manage to... I don't know. There might be a chance. Stick close to me, Chester. Yes, Mr. Dillon. Well, Marshal... Mighty glad you dropped back in. I was just wondering how you were getting along, Miss Like Lee. a kid with two tongues and an all-day sucker. Say, now tell me, did you find that little weasel Herman Bleeker? I, uh, I thought you told me he'd left town. Oh, well, I was just guessing, Mr. Dillon. He said something about planning to. Here, step up and have a shot of poison. Uh, uh, no, no, thank you, thank you. As a matter of fact, I came back here for a particular purpose. Chester and I have a little bet on Mr. Dillon, we... What kind of a bet is it, Marshal? Well, it was uh, about that shooting trick of yours, hitting the center of that playing card, you know. Chester figures that it was a fluke of luck. He's betting me that you can't do it five times in a row. Well, we'll soon settle that. The card's still up there. Stand aside, boys! Maybe gonna limber up for shooting irons and get out of the way! Get down there, Curly! All right. There's one. Couple of them. You're doing fine so far. How are you doing down there, boys? All dead center so far. Say, uh, you there, whatever your name is, uh, what do you think of your bet now? Well, I, I, I guess I just kind of lost my head, Miss Mamie. <laughs> well, three down, two to go. There's four. And one more! Uh, oh, yeah. 
are you stopping now for? Maybe? Well, I got some uh, rules I go by, Marshal. One of them's never to fire my last shot and leave my gun empty. Oh, I, I see. Well, I, that's a pretty good idea, I guess. Sorry to lose your bet for you, Marshal. Well, uh, I, I'm convinced. Well, I guess that didn't quite... Uh, Chester. <clears throat> uh, Miss Mamie, I, uh, I, I guess you're not a gambler yourself, huh? Who says so? I'll take a fair bet at even odds any day of the week and twice in Philadelphia. Well, in that case, I'll make you one. I got a pretty fair gun here. Or at least I thought so till I saw yours in action. Well, I'd say yours every bit as good as mine. Well, then how about a bet? Your gun against mine on the one-cut high card, huh? Well, now, how? I, I didn't... Of course, it's all right with me if you'd rather back out on it. Who's backing out? You got yourself a bet, Mr. Dillon. Finnegan! Shuffle us a deck. Okay, Miss Mamie. It's a better a fight. Mamie never backs out. Uh, there you are, Miss Mamie. Now, who goes first, Mr. Dillon? <laughs> Ladies, always. All right. If you're a friend, Lester will cut him for us once. It's Chester. Never it's mind. Chester cut proud. the cards. Yes, sir. Uh, ma'am. Now, let's see what we've got. Ah, Jack of Spades. That's not bad. Plenty good, Marshal. Plenty good enough to beat anything you can... King of Diamonds. All right. I'm beat. Fair and square. You won yourself a gun. Ah, thank you. Here, Chester, will you take it? Yes, sir. And now the handcuffs. Here, no! Maybe what you're under that? arrest. Uh, why, you of all the sidewinds, and jump across and backhanded Mamie! Mamie! Are you going to stay fast to me until I get you in a cell, so you might as well make the best of it. Why, you... And as far as that's concerned, you'll be safer in jail than out of it once word gets around. People here in Dodge City thought a lot of Herman Bleeker. That little sort of groundhog! That's no excuse for killing him in cold blood. What? You heard him, Mamie. You killed me. Bleeker! This, 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 this is the biggest, biggest night of my whole life. To hear somebody finally shut Mamie up and make her like it. The marshal's a gentleman, you little weasel! Here's how to talk to a lady. And, 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 and to hear you say how much the town thinks of me, Mr. Dillon. What's this all about, Herman? Well, I... I'll tell you what it's uh, all about. Yes. This little grub worm ran out on me in Cincinnati three years ago. Like to broke my heart. I've been hunting him ever since, and last night I found him. I wailed the living daylights out of him. <laughs> yeah, he looks like it. But why did you bury his clothes? Mr. Dillon, would you want to be married to a man that dressed like that? It, she, she pretty near murdered me, though, Mr. Dillon. I've been up there in bed all day, just too bruised and embarrassed to hobble downstairs. Oh, we had our ups and downs, Marshal, me and Herman. You know how it is. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Chester, give me the keys to the handcuffs, will you? Yes, sir, I got them right here in... Well, I guess they're over in the... What's the matter, Chester? Oh, Mr. Dillon. When we were digging out there, I guess I must have lost him.
Chester, can't you file that thing any faster? You might just well relax, Mr. Dillon. Took a half hour to get that one off Miss Mamie's wrist. Oh, no. All right, all right, but just hurry. I'm a filing as fast as I can. What? Oh, Miss Mamie gave me this bottle of Irish here to make the waiting a little easier. And it's Jameson's. Oh, well, fine, Doc, fine. Uh, Chester, let that go for a minute, huh? And open it up. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Hey, can you imagine it, boys? Little Herman Bleeker married for years to a woman like that. Yeah, I don't wonder what my... Oh, I'd get nightmares. Here you go, Mr. Dillon. Oh, thank you, Chester. Doc? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, here's to the weaker sex. Mr. Dillon, which one is that? <laughs> Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan as Mamie, with John Daner, Ralph Moody, and Byron Kane. Parley Bayer is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. As colorful as the Western Roundup and twice the fun, that's the Gene Autry Show, which comes your way every Saturday evening over CBS Radio. It's one of radio's most distinctive programs, flavored to taste with songs of the sagebrush and melodies of the mesquite country. The Gene Autry Show is 30 minutes you'll enjoy, packed full of comedy, songs, and the genial personality of the one and only Gene Autry. The whole Melody Ranch gang is on hand to entertain you tomorrow night, every Saturday night. So tune in the Gene Autry Show and hit the pleasure trail over most of the same CBS stations. Clancy Cassell speaking. And remember, Broadway is my beat brings you startling mysteries Saturday nights on the CBS Radio Network. One of the truly fun episodes of Gunsmoke, that was Hinkadoo, and that one was originally broadcast on October the 10th in 1952, and Jeanette Nolan just shined in that role. She played that same type of old woman in many episodes of Gunsmoke and also on the television show. In fact, she played a character on the television show entitled Dirty, or, or named Dirty Sally. And the character was so popular that they actually did a spin-off television show in 1974. It ran for one season entitled Dirty Sally, starring Jeanette Nolan. And uh, Dak Rambo, I think, uh, was uh, the young man that was with her. And she played that grizzled old character very, very close to the same as, uh, as Mamie here. 
that was the only show that was ever spun off of the Gunsmoke television show, and it featured Jeanette Nolan. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't you worry, though. We'll be back in two weeks with a whole new show. All right, everybody. I've got to get out of here. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Bye.